All right. I am excited to be joined by the one and only Jay Daniel Richer, who is a chat bot maker at the School of Bots. He's finishing up his experience in the Praxis program, his apprenticeship experience after he finished the six-month boot camp. And he is our eighth guest in Exponentially Empowered History, who is a Praxis member. And uh, we're going to dive into his story about his relationship with school and education and going through Praxis. And then we're going to dive into the topic of empathy, because that's a big theme for us on Exponentially Empowered. So welcome, Jay Daniel. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for uh, inviting me. My pleasure. So let's, let's start big, sort of big picture. What's, what's, your, what's your story? What's your backstory? Where are you from? And what are the earliest sort of memories of school and your relationship with school versus education? Following the rules, getting in line versus self-direction. Yeah, that's big. Um, okay, so I'm from Rhode Island uh, originally, uh, but right now I'm in like South Carolina. Um, and my relationship with school was kind of always a fight. <laughs> um, so I was diagnosed with like ADHD when I was five. So I kind of like went in wow. and I had to like take medicine like every day at like 2 p.m. at school, which was like super embarrassing. And um, it's like kids would like ask you like, oh, why are you taking that and stuff like that. Um, so kind of got that feeling of otherness right from the start. <laughs> um, and uh, let's see, earliest memory of school stuff so were you a good kid like did was you, I a good kid did, did I you was, follow the rules I would say I was a pretty obedient kid honestly um but it wasn't it's it's not because because like anything like uh weird or anything it was just more like I just hated being yelled at <laughs> so yeah uh yeah I just fell in line like that um but I can pretty much remember every single time that I've been scolded or like yelled at so yeah. Um, Within the context of school or with your parents or both? Um, it's a little bit of both. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then I think I started to, like, I have, like my parents would be, uh, ask me, like, oh, how is school today? And I'd just be like, I would never understood why they asked me that. Like, you know how it went. <laughs> yeah. um, like, nothing, nothing big happens. Uh, not super exciting, kind of boring. Um, and I mean, I think when you're younger, you definitely learn stuff like in elementary. Uh, absolutely. Like, you know, like uh, learning to read and stuff like that. Um, math, basic math. Uh, but past that, I think middle school is kind of like just this big joke piece that they just threw in there for no reason. Um, I've, I have not like learned a single thing in middle school, wait, yeah, I haven't learned a single thing in like middle school um, that I didn't learn in elementary, I think. Yeah, middle school is uh, the worst. <laughs> it, yeah, it's just daycare, man. Um, <laughs> yeah, and um, 
I just, yeah, that's kind of when I started uh, kind of questioning it, just like a little bit, not like big. Um, Did you start finding like, why certain... We, yeah, why are we like learning this stuff and how am I going to use this in life? And like, why can't I learn my own stuff? So did you start learning your own stuff? That's what I'm curious about. Did I start learning my own stuff? Did you start finding new ways to learn without being told to learn? Like, that's what I would say education is, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I kind of like, so at my parents' house, there's a bunch of like encyclopedias. Um, So I would just go through those because I didn't really have stable internet access. Um, And I always found that interesting, uh, especially... So there's this like one book on like medieval torture. And I was like, that is so cool. (laughs) So uh, that was pretty interesting. Um, And just looking at things like just in general and just going from like one topic to the other, um, very uh, in line with like the ADHD mind and stuff like that. Um, But yeah, I was kind of like the extent of it. I didn't really like start looking into stuff like through the internet until I was in high school and in high school, I just hated, I did not like school at all for sure. Um, but I had to, I had to get through it. I had to get through it. Um, I was in honors classes. Uh, so it's kind of like above, I don't remember what the name is, but just for like slightly smarter people, I guess you could call it or at least people get like super high grades all the time or, it's kind of a click, but I kind of, I went in with like honors classes and then kind of like sloped down and out. And I was just back in with like the, like the regular kids. Um, it was whatever. Uh, it was just, just like too much work that I just did not care about. Um, so it didn't really play out well. And then from there, uh, when it came to like, time to graduate and stuff like that um i was like wait really like i was i was because the entire like my entire public school experience was just me going with the flow like okay yeah whatever (laughs) yeah and then i was like wait like i have to like actually start making decisions for myself now like that's crazy um so i kind of kind of hit me in the face at that moment uh and i was like oh like jay daniel what are you gonna do so i kind of you know I was like, oh, default college, of course, right? Um, so then I ended up going to like community college of Rhode Island for like a semester, mostly uh, like my parents were definitely big on college. So like they had the expectation as well, which uh, weighed heavy on me. And then like from day one of that, I knew I didn't like college. I was like, I don't like this. Um, but I, I kept going because like, what else was I supposed to do? Like, you know, can't, can't really, you know, didn't feel like I could just quit. Um, and I was like, maybe it's going to turn around and stuff like that. Uh, but it didn't. Um, and then I re- like, I actually stumbled upon um, Derek McGill, who was like the, the practice, like uh, director of marketing at the time. I stumbled upon his Twitter because that was the one thing I did like about the internet was like Twitter. For some reason, there was such cool people on there. Still are. Hello. Um, <laughs> and I was like, oh, this guy's cool. Uh, he, he's like director of, uh, of marketing and practice. I was like, whoa, what's that? So I'd like click on the link and I'm like, this looks interesting. Like this, this is for me. Um, 
But there is one thing holding me back, which is like the whole uh, like permission mindset thing where like you, like I kind of felt like I needed like my parents' permission to do this. I was like trying to explain it to them. Uh, didn't really go well. I wasn't good at explaining it. <laughs> they weren't really good at understanding it. Um, so uh, I've actually stumbled upon Derek McGill's horror account. And I was like, I'm going to ask mm. him a question. So I did. I don't remember exactly what I asked, but basically like said that I don't need like my parents' permission, yada, yada, yada. And I was like, all right, bet. Like, let's do it. So I actually dropped out of college by my own unique way because I didn't, I don't know how to properly drop out of college. So I would slowly stop going to my, my least favorite classes. Um, and the last class that I dropped was like intro to business, which is like my favorite class because it was actually interesting. Um, and then, then, um, but like the entire time I was doing that, I was like, how do I break this to my parents? Cause like, they're pretty into it. So I, I would just jokingly like say, like I'm dropping out. <laughs> uh, and like, it's like, I don't think they believed me at first, but I was like absolutely serious, but I just said it in a joking way. Uh, because I didn't know how else to do it. Um, and they're like, all right, whatever. Uh, and then I did it like three more times. I was like, like I actually, like, no, like I actually dropped out. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they weren't 100% positive. Like they didn't uh, react well to it at first, uh, but they came around within like two weeks or whatever. Um, Were you accepted to practice by then? I still... So the practice application process is like super intimidating to me because they have you do a video. And at the time it was like that one way video thing. And I'm not good at that. <laughs> all, right, all right. Yeah. I want, I want to get yeah. into that video story, yeah. but Hey, let's go back for a minute. You mentioned middle school and then you started finding books on medieval torture. I don't want to talk about medieval, medieval torture yeah, necessarily, yeah. but <laughs> that that's interesting. And what stands out about that is that, it sounds like that was one of the first sparks of curiosity in terms of self-directed education. And then that's, I imagine created a snowball where you were going through elementary school, which tends to be, you know, more fun anyway. And then you just, then you got to that sixth grade, whatever, seventh, seventh grade experience. And then you started questioning. Then you started picking up some more books, but I'm I'm curious, am I accurate about that? Like that was maybe the first step. And then what, can you identify, you know, a few more s- steps in that sequence? What was the next level topic of, of interest? What was the next book? What was the one after that? Next topic of interest. I'll be thinking on that. Um, was there like that snowball effect though? I don't think so. It was just more of a acute experience. It was interest. Kind of, yeah. 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 So in high, like high school, so the high school years, were you learning, were you reading books for pleasure, for instance, where most people so are just reading school, the books they're assigned? High school, I did not read any book that I was not assigned. I was like, they're going to make me read that. I'm just going to read that. And that's it. Um, but the that's when I kind of, you know, sold on the internet and I was like, like, this is interesting. Like I can learn anything at any time, anywhere, any place about anything and no one can stop me. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Spent way too much time on that. <laughs> it's amazing though, that 
it opens up so many doors where you had a few generations ago, just access to information so closed off. And then mm-hmm. the World Wide Web is opening so much up. Uh, okay, so you 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 uh, told your parents you dropped out, and then what was the timeline there in terms of applying to Praxis and convincing them that, that you were on the right path and not going to be homeless? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um... So I applied to Praxis twice. First time I didn't get in, but okay. I think, yeah, I think like right after that or around, I don't know, like somewhere around there, I applied, didn't get in. Um, so now I was like, crap, like I gotta do something. <laughs> so kind of panicked. Probably should have done a little more thinking, but I was like, no, let's just hop into this coding bootcamp. So <laughs> I did that. Um, moved to to Dallas pretty much for like three months. Um, coding for like 12 hours a day, uh, kind of a miserable experience, but like in the moment, it wasn't that bad, oddly enough. Um, met some pretty cool people though. Were you and really excited about coding or was it like, I need to do something? It was definitely, it was, I'm not, okay. So I'm not excited about coding itself, but I am excited about creating something. Sure. Um, so that was kind of like how I thought about it. And I was like, I just thought like I could, you know, put in the work and like do the, the work to get to the, to the end point. But the amount of work that was required to get to the end point was just too much and too boring, and too confusing and too frustrating. Um, and that's kind of how I went into like no code kind of stuff, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that sounds, it is, I would say for most people, a better decision than staying in a college that you don't like. Right. Yeah, yeah. And cost-effective wise, I've been looking at a lot of these boot camps, and there's hundreds of these coding boot camps. <laughs> you don't hear about them in high school, do you? No. Um, but there's just an opportunity to go dive deep into something. And if it's only three months, the cost is less than a tuition at a semester at a college. Yeah. Most of the time. Hmm. And then you can figure out what's next, right? I'm sure yeah. that's what happened. It sounds like you you got some information figured out if that was for you or not, and then made the next step, which was what, by the way? Yeah. After that, um, I, I actually was so attached to the idea of like coding, like why? Um, but I just kept doing it for a bit. And then I was like, no, nah, this is like, this is stupid. Um, then I reapplied to Praxis. Uh, after I, I had this like website where I would just like, journal about like politics and stuff so i kind of used that as a means of getting into praxis because the first time i applied i didn't really have much to show so um i just thought i need to like create something so i did and i got into praxis and now i'm here (laughs) right on so let's flesh out the video idea you were having some struggles with shooting a one-way video interview yeah absolutely because like I, I don't know what the questions are before they're going to be asked. Um, so it just made me like super nervous, anxious. And I just, you know, say the stupidest stuff. Cause like, Wait, was it a one way interview where you were recording it or was it, yeah, like, this like, is a live video. It's, it's kind of impersonal, honestly, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I don't have time for you do your own thing. But um, basically you like, they'll, 
it'll have like a countdown and stuff uh, for like you to respond like a certain amount of time, like 30 seconds. Um, and then like, you can't, you can't re-record. So like once it's done, it's done. Yeah. Um, and they'll ask you like maybe like five questions or something like that. So you did that the first round and did you, did you fall on your face? Is that why you didn't yeah, get in? I didn't get past that. I didn't get past that stuff. <laughs> um, so that's but, awesome though, because the, one of the reasons you got in the second time mm-hmm. is yeah, you sounds like you had a bigger portfolio to show, but you were more experienced. You were more confident because you were willing to fail. Right. That reminds me of, uh, Wayne Gretzky is a great hockey player. He would just at practice, you would just let him, he would fall down because he was beat he would, uh, while he's skating because he was trying to grow. He was trying to push his skills to the next level and he wasn't afraid to look stupid and, and, and just make mistakes. And like, that's the fastest way to, to growth is to go do what you don't know how to do. Right. Yeah. So totally. you, you started those, that was the first time you'd done the video interview, I'm guessing, or the one way interview. And then it was really intimidating and you messed up. And then like, what's, what's, what's the worst that happens though? You're still whatever, 18 years old and you still got your life ahead of you. You, then you just do it again. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I replied like seven months later. Um, and for whatever reason, <laughs> I was just more confident and it worked. And I was like so shocked that it, like I went through the entire process and I didn't mess up. So. Well, and the very fact that you applied again was a signal, yeah. right? Yeah. Hey, I'm persistent. Hmm. That's the very fact that you applied again. That's showing them what type of person you are. With... So okay. that's great, man. And, and, and you had a similar thing. So Praxis... Praxis's sister company, if you will, or the, the company that grew out of Praxis, which is Crash, which is who I now work for. Mm-hmm. They Crash has a has a a video pitch platform to win jobs. So Praxis people, Praxis participants go on Crash now and pitch companies for their apprenticeship, right? Mm-hmm. And you were writing in the Slack channel. Slack group on crash, I believe about how it was so hard to just get comfortable shooting pitch videos. Mm. And you, you were, took you three hours to do, to record one, one minute video. And then you, but you just kept on doing it and then it got faster and faster. Tell us more about that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So honestly, staring at like a camera is like, super intimidating um especially if you're not used to it like i never make videos unless i have to um but something like this is like fine for some reason um but you mean this uh, podcast interview yeah like this is oh yeah yeah for whatever reason i mean at first probably wasn't for me it's because you're not i mean we're recording this but yeah. It's not like this frame of you have 30 seconds to give us your best possible image of yourself you know? Yeah, I guess, yeah. Less judgment, less judgment. Um, okay, so I, so I'm not very good at saying a certain amount of, like, certain words or, like, a, maybe, like, a paragraph of words on the spot at the right period of time when there's a camera staring at me. 
So I, I would like type out like what I, like the line said I'm supposed to say. Um, maybe, maybe I'd like uh, say it like slightly differently, but pretty much uh, just like read it off um, or like try to like memorize it which is like kind of funny because it's like the one thing I didn't pick up in school. <laughs> um, and I would just try to, to say like one phrase at a time while looking at the camera, you know, smiling or trying to look as natural as possible while I'm doing it. And then I would stop right there. I'd stop the video. I would say another line. Uh, maybe I'll mess up and I'll do it. I'll like repeat the process. Um, a lot of times I'll actually like leave, like during, like when I'm trying to like make an entire video, I'll, I'll leave and like, I'll turn off light or something like that, or I'll move something slightly. And then when I go back to like stitch all my like mini videos together, you can tell that something's off yeah. and then I have to like redo the entire thing or and it's, it's quite frustrating, but I've, I've so have, so you started with that approach and then did, have you always been like that? Oh, no, I didn't start. I, well, wait. Yeah, actually. Like your first crash start. video versus your last crash video. What's the difference? Um, yeah. Let's see. I think I always, yeah, I think I always, no, actually, in the beginning, I didn't really know I had to, like, do like that. So I would try to say my lines, and then I'd realize that there's, just, like, a ton of space in between my lines. Um, so I'd have to, like, you know, cut that out anyways. Um, but comparing like my first crash video to my latest, um, definitely a lot more energy in like my latest video, uh, which is like the pitch that got me my current job at school bots. Um, but, and then like my first video, so like they crash kind of changed up their thing where like you, you did slides in the beginning. Right. And now it's just kind of like you making a video. Um, so I would just, you know, kind of like read off the slides and that was kind of like my, my clutch, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I don't know. I like the new style a lot better. Well, I've seen, I've seen a couple of the, I remember seeing a video on Twitter you posted a few months back where you had done the stitching together approach and you also put the text underneath, uh, text of what you're saying on the video so it was, it was a highly it was a highly produced video i, I thought it was awesome it's like this guy knows yeah. what he's doing um and just so you know anyone out there who's interested in crash you know it doesn't need to be stitched together with and and jj no one above and beyond to make that uh that production quality but um you can you can just shoot it 60 seconds straight and it doesn't need to be perfect all right that's my that's my pitch for crash so but 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 the theme here, and what's great is that you weren't feeling, you know, confident at the beginning. Definitely not. But you had the courage, audacity, and gumption to go ahead and start doing it and find a creative approach to make it work for you. Yeah. So, okay, well, I'm just really not feeling the 60-second straight approach. So, okay, why not do it this way? And you, you persevered through that. And I just feel like, I feel like, I love talking about this on this podcast with guests talking about the, the beginnings of the creative process because 
that's the hardest. It's the most laborious. It's the least confidence, most vulnerability, most resistance, right? And so often, especially because most of us went to school and we didn't learn to how to overcome those things because we're just following directions. And so we have this school mindset and we're not creative. We're not taking initiative. We don't have those, those soft skills. And then we just give up. We just, no, I'm not going to go create. That's create a video. That's I'm not going to mess it up. I'm not going to have my lines. I'll just, I'll just, no, I'll just go the old fashioned way and send a resume. But if you go through that a little bit of discomfort to start the creative process, I mean, I remember the first time I wrote a blog post, you've written some blogs and you might identify with this. Yeah. Just feeling I did the 30 day blog challenge. Right. Yeah. And every, I mean, not every time, but many of the posts in those first 30 days, I felt so frightened just to press publish. It's like, what if someone's going to think about my, my opinions about school and education or, and then you realize nobody even reads it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but now I just blog daily and it's, it's what I do. Right. Because you would go through at the beginning of the creative process. You, become more competent and confident. So I want to commend you because a lot of people your age are still sitting in the cinder block classrooms <laughs> and you're yeah. doing the hard work, man. <laughs> I guess um, so. Yeah. So t- tell us more about the, that in, in the Praxis program with the boot camp. What were, what was your impression in the first month there of the boot camp? What, did, what were the takeaways? What were the obstacles, lessons? Hmm. Um, I mean, I was pretty excited just to be there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, pretty it's an exciting community yeah, of people, right? Absolutely. Definitely. I love the community. Um, biggest takeaways. Um, so did you have a certain project that first, I mean, doesn't even be a first month. I'm curious about what types of projects you did. What, what, what growth did you experience because of those projects? What stands out in the boot camp experience? Yeah. Uh, so I think the, it's called the personal project or I don't know, project in general. Um, but uh, I got connected with this like client in, in Georgia who runs a, like a t-shirt printing business. And she wanted me to basically um, like run her like social media marketing strategy and stuff like that. And uh, I had no idea how to do that. That's for sure. Um, but I was pretty challenging working with the client because like they can change what they want at like any time they want. And then you kind of just have to like, deal with it. Um, so that was fun. And then uh, she kind of shifted because like, like the deadline was kind of like approaching and I was like, trying to get stuff together. Um, and she just basically decided that I should just like write like a bunch of blog posts, um, like outlining what she should do uh, in terms of this, like the strategy. And then she would go and do them. Uh, so I was, I don't know. I was personally a little bit disappointed. I was like, all right, but, um, but I did it actually like I pumped out like six blog posts in like, a day so I was like pretty proud of myself but <laughs> yeah uh so just like you know creating content in general uh definitely helps uh me 
you know, get, get some confidence in that area and like documentation and stuff like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And the fact that you get to work with a real client, I mean, how valuable is that? And yeah, you didn't know what you're doing, but necessity is mother invention. You have a customer to please and you learned a lot fast. I'm guessing. Yeah, absolutely. I was so proud. I was like, Hey dad, I have a client. <laughs> <laughs> is that a fun word? Client. It is, this is my client. Anyway, <laughs> but yeah, con- contrast that to the school environment where it's okay. We're now going to learn about this topic in marketing yeah. and there will be a test on it and it might be relevant three years from now. <laughs> like <laughs> when you graduate, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just all this preparation mindset. It's just, just in case mindset as opposed to, I have a client right now, I have a deadline right now, I need to create value right now. What am I gonna do? All right, I'm gonna learn. I mean, it's such a, such a more authentic way to learn and that's why the apprenticeship is actually the more common way humans have taught mm-hmm. one another throughout history in terms of trades and the, the, the K, K-12 and the conveyor belt K-12 to higher ed system is, is a really a blip in history. Mm, yeah. So love it, man. But okay. So let's, um, I loved hearing it, your story with the school and education stuff. Let's go into our empathy realm because we've had, we've had some exchanges on Facebook. Some th- we've, we've commented on some different threads on Facebook posts recently for the mm. past few months, uh, talking about the nature of empathy and what's possible for humans. And you had a post uh, a couple weeks ago, something along the lines of, you know, everyone likes to talk about empathy, but except when it's for the aggressor. It's very true. And yeah. no one's talking, no one's <laughs> talking about this. And I was like, Hey, I'm talking about that. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> we did a podcast with Jackson Sullivan <clears throat> a couple months ago and getting into that frame of, okay, what are the motivations behind someone who's committing really atrocious behaviors? Mm. Um, but before we get into that specific zone, what would you say is your definition of empathy? And why does it matter? Why does empathy matter? Hmm. Let's see. I would say my, my personal definition of empathy. I don't have a personal definition of empathy. I just know what other people think about empathy. And I know like they, they like mean different things uh, depending. Like a lot of time it might just mean like goodness and like in general and like volunteering and donating and just being nice in general um and then other times it could be just like you know understanding where someone's coming from but like in a like almost like a like a like a rational perspective like i don't think it's i don't think like those people are talking about like feeling other people's feelings and then we have like the third group where they believe that it's feeling other people's feelings mm-hmm. and for that third group i would say Empathy isn't that great. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't want to feel other people's feelings. <laughs> I like those categories, uh, especially the last two. And that's the key distinction, right? Mm-hmm. Empathy can be understanding someone else's feelings. Yeah. Or 
feeling other people's feelings. Is it actually feeling someone else's feelings? And that, I, I, I feel right now a little bit apprehensive about that idea. Like, how do I know what this person's feeling physiologically? That's why when I'm attempting to express empathy, I insert the words, you know, I imagine you're feeling this way, or that sounds like it could be, or I'm guessing this. Hmm. And you're not like those words can prevent any feeling of imposition or any, any dynamic of imposition. Oh, you must be feeling this, or I feel, I, I know what you're experiencing, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 no. I'm simply going to help understand and help you clarify and help you feel more relaxed and grounded because you got a need for understanding that like or to be understood Matt, or to be heard or to be seen yeah it's not necessarily i'm telling you that i know how you're feeling you know yeah i think it's pretty uh i feel like it's really insulting when someone like it seems like yeah i mean it Unless, like, you know that they, like, went through what you're going through, uh, like, from, like, the beginning. Um, yeah, if there's, like, a really specific, you know, hardship. Yeah, absolutely. And you can, you can relate. But even then, like, everyone has their own subjective experience. And so, you know, it's going to help meet the need for autonomy and independence, right? When you don't presume to know, that, that, that's going to put people's defenses up usually. And yeah, it's gonna, they're going to want to push back because they have a need for autonomy and independence. It's like, you don't know what I'm feeling. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, you know, they could understand, appreciate the thought, even if you're yeah. not using the, mo- the optimal, optimal language. Um, so, so, okay, with that second category then, where mm-hmm. you're simply using a sort of analytical approach where you're trying to understand yeah that's uh what someone's uh, feeling would you that you you're a fan of that definition right and that and employing empathy in that way oh yeah definitely that's that's how i go about it 24 <laughs> 7 great yeah so i mean I, i'm curious if you you know what what responses do you have to to someone who's maybe is not a fan of empathy where it's like oh no that's going to be enabling right if you try to understand someone's feelings and you talk about their feelings and they're feeling, they're feeling down, disappointed and depressed for whatever reason. And then you want to talk to them about their feelings. And then that's just going to enable them to bask in their depression. Like what's, what's your, what's your response to that? Uh, well, my instinctive response response is that, I mean, I don't know about depression, depression, but like, if someone's going through something and I know that I can't help them, which is most of the time, if it's like a, like something sad or something, well, maybe if they get angry, I might be able to like solve what made them angry. Um, but if it's just something that I like, I cannot fix, then I think all you can do at that point is like, you know, just try to distract them. If that's what's going to, like help the situation distract or you just mean like what do you mean by distract um well if it's if they're like in an environment where 
something negative is happening and that's affecting them, then distraction, I guess, could be removing them from that environment temporarily uh, under the assumption that like they have to be in that uh, situation at some point. Um, or it could just be like taking them out to like a movie or something like that, you know? Yeah, like they, they got dumped by their girlfriends. Hey, let's go to the movies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that can be a inter- like helpful intervention and help get a need met for, for support yeah, yeah. and, and um, for play. And, yeah, um, it's, and, it's not... to, and, to, and to have some ease, right? To get your mind off and stop, stop um, going over the situation and, and go, have some ease and get away. Right. It's not, not really a solution, but it's like a temporary one. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call that empathy. I would call that like a tool, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in terms of the enablement thing, I think there's that argument is um, speaking to a fear where it's like, I, I don't want this person to, I'm afraid that if I empathize with them, Mm-hmm. then this person will get stuck or I will not get my own needs met for purpose and boundaries, or I'll just be just soaking up all of their, they'll be expressing and pouring all their feelings onto me. And we won't get anywhere and I'll be stuck with that and they won't get anywhere. I think that's like psychologically, I would, I think that that's catastrophizing and it's based on a fear and a lack of trust that we can, we can progress through empathy empathy is in line with the need for purpose right like do you do you do you agree where there's when you help someone identify even just name hey you're feeling disappointed right now i'm guessing oh yeah and then they say oh yeah that's right disappointed mm-hmm. do you find that to be valuable in moving the process forward I, I can't see how that would help. <laughs> like if, okay. if I was feeling disappointed and someone pointed it out to me, I don't see that would, how that would help. Well, what I mean in that situation is you, the, the, the friend that you're trying to help isn't, hasn't identified disappointment yet. Okay. Okay. Right. If you're helping them to name their feelings, mm-hmm. it's oftentimes because we don't, we don't get in our 15,000 hours of school, a whole lot of education on emotional intelligence and the vocabulary of feelings. Yeah. So maybe it's, maybe it's a more uncommon feeling. You help them name, Hey, you're feeling perplexed. You're feeling appalled. You know, you're feeling angst. You're feeling agitation. If you can help them clarify, but maybe they just have this general uncomfortable feeling, but they, they haven't named the specificity of it. Do you have any experience doing that? Like just helping people name their feelings when they don't know what they are? Uh, no, I'm usually, uh, I'm usually, the other side of the uh, analogy. <laughs> you mean so. you're, you're the one receiving the empathy? No, I'm the one that doesn't name feelings. So what's your approach? Ooh, okay. My, my approach to, to like helping someone name their feelings? Yeah, or just with what you, what you identified as your definition of empathy of mm-hmm. yeah. helping people understand or letting them know that you understand their feelings. Okay. You know, how would you, how do you go about doing that? I just basically say like, you know, like, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, like, do you want to talk about it? Like, I don't think I can like do a ton of stuff. It's more like they have to like process it themselves. 
Yeah. 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 But even, even if you don't have, you know, specific, Hey, I know you're feeling this, like, or I imagine you're feeling this specific feeling right now. Just having some semblance of like, Hey, that makes sense to me. Mm. Right. Or I don't hundred percent know what you're feeling, but I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think that's really valuable. I think it's a great starting point. Um, Nathaniel Brandon in six pillars of self-esteem second pillar is the practice of self-acceptance mm-hmm. and he, he outlaw, he um, lays out this, uh, this concept where you can't leave a place you have never been. So you need to identify where you are in the moment. And when you can, if you can acknowledge when you're about to go do some work that you you're feeling resistance to, if you can acknowledge, you know, I'm feeling unsure about this, or I'm feeling nervous about this, or I'm feeling apprehensive about this. Now you've allowed the feeling to be released or he gives an example of you're going to go to a party and you're feeling nervous about the social situation because you might have some history of, of just not comfortable, not feeling comfortable in, in larger groups. Before you go to the party, you acknowledge, Hey, I'm noticing right now I'm feeling nervous and anxious. That helps actually let the feelings go. And so anyway, just bringing it back to what we were saying a few minutes ago about sort of this need for purpose and like the enabling, I think we need to start with just acknowledging what are the facts, what are the feelings happening right now? And then people feel a little more relaxed and calm after that because they've identified it. They've been empathized with, they've been heard and seen and supported. Okay, now let's make an action plan if, if you want to move forward. Hmm. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I was having trouble understanding you, but now, now I get it. Um, like in ninth, 10th grade, I had a pretty bad... Uh, social anxiety and like the solution to that is like CB, CBT, like cognitive behavioral therapy and stuff like that. But um, like they, a lot of people say like, you gotta, like when you're feeling like anxious, you gotta um, like, you know, tell yourself that um, pretty much or, like recognize it or just say like that you're excited, which is like another perspective on it. Um, and then like, you kind of like um, realize your fear in a sense. Um kind of take like not ownership over it maybe um and oh yeah i think it's a i think it's a good thing okay so tell us what you meant about that facebook post with people don't go far enough and they're hesitant to empathize with someone who's right right Mm, yeah touchy subject um but so there's two sides to every story. I mean, but the only acceptable one to hear is the one of the victim. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, and if you say anything, not not necessarily positive, but like if you say anything, uh, like if you try to understand the other side of the story, like where they're coming from or like how they would, like how they would perceive, uh, whatever act they did or how they would perceive what led up to the act that they did. Uh, and you kind of want that as evil. So, <laughs> yeah, there's this fear there, right? Of if we talk about that, then that it's somehow 
condoning the actions of that person. And then there's a fear that you will be ostracized from the world. If you haven't asked a question about, huh, well, can we talk about maybe what was going on for that person? But people, again, people in the culture, the, the norm, right, is let's conflate two concepts. Let's assume that if you're asking that question, that you must be somehow taking this side and, yeah. you know, it gets yeah. into this psychology that we, we learned growing up of win versus lose hmm. rather than let's just be curious about what's going on. Yeah. And we don't yeah. need to have debates over everything. We can have yeah. discussions. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like when you start doing stuff like that, then you just get, la- you get labeled like a, like a, was it victim blamer? <laughs> um, right yeah quite quite annoying um it's just like just like a cultural well maybe not a cultural taboo but it's definitely a taboo um like Mm -hmm. so if if someone was like maybe i stumbled upon some story on facebook on like or on like domestic abuse maybe like twitter maybe like in a group chat um and like I see people obviously rushing to the side of the victim. Right. And, you know, maybe like I, I read into it obviously, and I like educate myself on like what went down and stuff like that. So I'm not pleadful. Um, and like, I already see one side of the story is complete. I could add to that story and basically add nothing to the mix. Or I could, I could like explain like how his mind likely works because People who like commit, uh, yeah, people who commit like acts of evil like that, um, they typically have high self-esteem, which is kind of like the opposite of what people think or like, um, pretty sure like psychopaths and stuff like they have high self-esteem. And, like, well, how do you define self-esteem? Because I, I, would, I would completely disagree, but I think you mean like in a sort of pseudo self-esteem where it's a it's a sort of egotistical. Yeah. Um, they just think very highly of themselves. Yeah. Well, and they're disconnected from their own need to help and consider other people and respect other people, which is actually, I would say that's not real self-esteem because if you're connected to yourself in a conscious way, then you're not, you're going to want to celebrate other people as well as a natural extension so I, I understand what you're saying though. Like self-esteem yeah. has these, there's a caricature definition. The reason I just cut you off there and I, I apologize, yeah. but I just want to no. like, that's a big, that's a big term. And we talk about a lot in the show is, mm-hmm. is like real self-esteem as defined by Nathaniel Brandon, author of the six pillars of self-esteem. And then there's this caricature of self-esteem of, I think what you're, what you're talking about with the psychopathic and just like, um, there's this narcissism right that's what you're getting at right yeah 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 okay so so go ahead yeah um yeah so they typically like domestic abuser typically would like um like it kind of it kind of sounds ridiculous to normal people but just um like if their wife would like do like a small criticism or like maybe not like an actual criticism, but like maybe she notices uh, that there's like 
dirt next to the door or whatever. Uh, or um, that, let's see, um, just like any kind of like, like slight on like his like masculinity in a way uh, that he would like perceive it as like an, like an, an attack on his like ego. And then he uh-huh. would, he would like see himself as the victim. Um, and then he would feel justified in aggressing against her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just laying it out like that. That's a little, we're already in taboo territory, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. So like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you and I right now, we're totally, um, I, I imagine you agree. It's like we are sympathetic and advocates for the, for the wife in that scenario, right? Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> like, of course. <laughs> yeah, um, it wasn't clear. <laughs> yeah, of course. And now we're going to this next level of mm-hmm. going beyond just labeling somebody evil. I, that's yeah. a pet peeve of mine. I don't know about you. Like, evil yeah, is sure. the most shortcut of a word. Yeah. Let's just yeah. stop all evil, like, ever done. See ya. <laughs> yeah, that's probably why I really, I don't really believe in, like, evil, but I do believe in, like, you know, bad and, like, wrong i mean there's there are my there might be like like a few exceptions for evil so let's let's break it down more into the potential psychology i think this is a good example by the way with domestic abuse you know yeah where he is triggered right where he, yeah. the, the wife um complains you know there's there's too much dirt near the door whatever the case may be yeah, yeah. and now we're asking we're trying to go beyond evil here yeah we're going to ask questions now again to underscore we are not condoning anyone's behavior we are simply asking questions yeah now he feels frustrated perhaps mm-hmm. he feels irritated maybe he has a need to be respected that he's trying to get met if we can we can identify that we can start to build some sort of bridge and we can, you know, and in sort of any sort of rehabilitation after that incident, if we were going to help mediate a conversation between the husband and wife, how can each party identify what the other person is needing in that situation? Then we can start to heal it and we can then move forward in our lives and prevent those in the future when we just say someone's evil, it's not going to help them yeah. heal so that we're, we have improvements. Right. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, so I see a lot, like someone will like go to prison for like X, Y, and Z and they'll just be like, you know, Facebook posts on it. And then like, you'll go to the comments and it'll be like, um, just people saying, well, I understand. I definitely understand where they're coming from, but like, they'll be like, Oh, like, you know, rot in prison and stuff like that. I just, I still understand that kind of stuff. But, um, so I, it's so interesting that people get labeled evil for like questioning that kind of stuff. But if you think about it, people in shows like, um, let's see, criminal minds, like where they're doing like psycho psychoanalyzing like criminals and stuff, like they're never looked at as evil. <laughs> And they're just doing the same stuff we are pretty much uh, in that sense. Right. Because somehow I guess they're, they're creating a show. So it's, it's all good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
But I think this is a really powerful top topic where we're actually going to make progress as a species if we have the courage and the, the sort of cr- critical thinking maturity, I would call it, where we're not just going to jump to conclusions and label people because they ask the question. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But what else do you think that in that, in that scenario, uh, what do you think psychologically could be going on for him or what's triggering that? Maybe some, you know, early childhood trauma or whatever, or like, you know, maybe, uh, maybe he saw the same relationship that he has with his wife, but like, you know, with his father and his, uh, wife I, I don't know but um yeah so just kind of like you know like oh this is a normal relationship and you know i'm gonna you know instill that in mine or something like that uh but you know it's obviously like a case-by-case thing can't really make any yeah. uh, generalizations yeah but i think you hit it on the head where yeah. oftentimes it goes back to the, the childhood experiences and that's when that's when I think the empathy can really come in or if we start getting curious, okay, yes, this person was triggered then lashed out at his wife. That's not helpful for anybody. Okay. Now let's try and figure out the root cause of that. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's have some analysis going on. Okay. He got triggered. Okay. But why did he get triggered? I think that I don't know. You might agree with this where (laughs) that word gets tossed around. Oh, he was triggered. Okay, well, where does that come from? I think we just like, it's just like everyone gets triggered. But how, about, how, do, we ha- how do we have a world where we don't get triggered? How, how do we heal these triggers? How do we prevent these triggers? You know, hmm. that's usually what's happening is it's a trigger from a childhood experience where maybe his father or his mother, you know, told him in, in, a, in a stern way. Maybe it was the way that she, maybe she, the way she asked it. And again, we're not, we're not saying that she is causing the, the, the crime, right? Yeah. But something in the way she said it hmm. ignited a, a fear, feeling of rage within him because he had unresolved past trauma where his parents maybe yelled at him and he felt terrified and he learned to suppress that rage yeah. or that fear. And it comes out in this moment because it's not integrated into his psychology where he can, he can just let that go. It's he's, he's, he's made sense of that memory and he can react in, in from the front part of his brain, not, not just this automatic thing. And so then if we can actually come to understand what might've caused his eruption without condoning it, but simply understanding it objectively, then there can be more empathy because then you see a little child, right? Oh, that child who is powerless and innocent was hurt and needed better and a better environment for his situation. Yeah, absolutely. And like a great, but like totally controversial book on this is called, it's called like evil by Roy something. I think it starts with a B. Um, and he kind of, kind of does what I does, what I do. Um, so it's, it's just a book on him trying to explain like where evil comes from and like what goes on in people's minds that are evil. Um, So 
it's pretty interesting stuff. He definitely talks about like domestic abuse uh, in there. And um, he actually, he does say high self-esteem and that's where I got that from. But sure. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, uh, pretty interesting book. This can go to any level. I think I, it, it, can, it can go to, to murdering somebody, you know, some people say that they're just people who are uh, psychopathic and that's just how it is. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's the case. I'm, I guess I'm agnostic about that, but I'm virtually certain that, well, what's the, what's the cause? What's the cause of the psychopath? Yeah. Yeah. It's, It's just, it's just absolutely. He's, his genes were completely programmed and that's it. It's like, no, genes are expressed through the nurturing. It's not nature versus nurture. It's nature and nurture. So something in his childhood or her childhood is going to be contributing at the very least to, to the, the murder that happens when that person is, is older. So if we want to be solving these problems, then, we need to be asking these questions, right? Yeah. Well, America also has quite the, uh, the punishment culture over yeah. rehabilitation. So that's definitely a contributing factor. So <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's like, you know, you get these Facebook comments, like you kind of alluded to, Oh, he deserves it. So like, well, where did we learn that? You know, we learned that because we were punished growing up. Yeah, that's true. Right. And the, and the culture is, it's really, it's pretty, it's pretty thick. You know, the, the incarceration rate, and so I, I, I'm, I just want to say, Jay Daniel, I'm, I'm really happy to see that little Facebook post and that we're talking about this because yeah. this is like, we're, we're pioneers, man. <laughs> it's just, people just go right to this person's a bad person. That's it. Uh, yeah. Uh, we need to be in the rehabilitation mode, right? Yeah. Yeah. Not to like go into politics or anything, but like with cancel culture, like, you know, if someone beats their wife then it's just like oh he's the bad guy and like which is true sure and then but like there's no like further analysis into like really like how how it happens or like why it happened yeah absolutely it's the same thing i mean maybe we need does need to be canceled Mm. i'm not i'm not necessarily against that i don't know yeah but let's because we don't want to maybe support that and that could be, there could be some enabling if it's not canceled. I don't know. We can yeah. talk about, we can have that conversation. Absolutely. Okay. But no matter what, let's have the conversation. Huh? What was alive in that human being when he or she hit the other person or any of these, any of these acts? Mm. What need was that person trying to get met? Mass shooter. That's a key one that people. Yep. And I've mentioned this in the podcast before with Jackson, where that we get this senseless act of violence is this term. That was a senseless act of violence. Yeah. And I understand the sentiment there where it's, wow, it's so incomprehensibly unfathomable and appalling. I feel so appalled by that. It's so, and it's so, tragic and overwhelming that it's hard to understand there's a, there's a, there's confusion bewilderment there but if we can process those feelings right and now say okay what are the 
everything's cause and effect in this planet. You know, what contributed to that person's psychology and how can we prevent that? Because oftentimes the mass shooter situation, again, I can't know for sure how someone, what someone's psychology is, but I can imagine the needs they're trying to get met are a need for connection, a need for love, a need for empathy and visibility. I mean, how many, how many of those people who are, who are, who are committing these mass shooting murders? I mean, how many of them are really in healthy, loving, warm, rich relationships or communities where they're, they're getting tons of empathy, you know, people who get tons of empathy are going to be more integrated and that's not going to happen. So do you have any sort sort of visions for how humans could evolve here? in terms of the restoration, the rehabilitation and like, instead of punishment, have you thought much about that? Um, I've definitely thought about it, but I haven't like done any like deep research or anything, but I do think that, I mean, I would love to have like a, like a national conversation on like prisons and stuff. Yeah. I don't know. I just like the American culture around like prisons and like, you know, just rot there and stuff like that. I don't know. This is so well with me. Um, there are countries like, I think it's Denmark, where they, uh, they're they a lot more rehabilitation focused. But the thing is, like, you're, like they're, they're just living in this, you know, cushy looking place. This looks normal, but they're not allowed to leave. Um, and I think people here would not want to do that because, like, you're basically paying for people that you don't support to have, like live, live a cushy life with your taxes um but we kind of do well, i mean like we we still do that but it's not as cushy here obviously um so you're talking talking about in denmark they have more of an environment where they can help rehabilitate yeah yeah it's focused on rehabilitation and it, just, it looks like a college dorm if you look it up but yeah yeah, and it's understandable when people get frustrated about the taxation element, right? Because yeah. that's not meeting their need for independence when they're in choice, when the money is taken from them and they haven't decided if they want to support that. So having a, a free market of <clears throat> restoration and rehabilitation for people who have committed these acts. And, and what you said, though, is key where they're not allowed to leave maybe. And there yeah. can be some sort of the need for boundaries there and safety. If someone is just committed an atrocity, then maybe they need to be physically restrained so that they're not hurting people. Yeah. Okay. And in Denmark, like with their system, less, I forget exactly what it is, but basically less people reoffend like once they get released. Um, yeah. And it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty uh, amazing stuff. And then, but like here, it's a lot, it's a lot different. And um, prisons are kind of crime schools where they learn how to like, just do it better. And like they get out and they. Yeah, they, uh, there's a whole lot of the, the top down psychology going on where the, the prison guards themselves are, are in bullying mode, right? Mm-hmm. So the bullying mode doesn't, doesn't facilitate a whole lot of restoration. Yeah. So what we need is humanity and compassion 
where we can identify that, oh, this human right now, they, they're really in pain because they, they just hurt somebody really seriously. This is really tragic for the, the victim, the person who was hurt. That person needs to be healed as well. But the person who committed that needs to be healed. How can we go about doing that and having conversations in a nurturing way? And once that, once that person is in a genuine way is actually feels seen, heard, connected, empathized, the, the reoffense is really not going to happen if it's actually done. If the, yeah. the restoration is actually completed. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I don't know what it is about American culture. Like it's just, I don't know. It's very, very screw you. So <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and as we wrap up here, let's, let's bring it back to praxis. Cause like, yeah, I think one of the big seeds here, and of course when we say American culture, it's a big term. Yes. It's a, it's a, broad term that has many facets but one yeah. of those facets is the k-12 through school system and mm-hmm. it's like where did we learn punishment you know yeah you got in trouble or whatever or you did or i guess you, you were the good kid but you were learning to avoid punishment by being the good kid i was yes very much so <laughs> or like you were you, you you had to go take your adhd medicine mm-hmm. and you learned to obey that right and yeah you know You've come out to be to be free thinking, which is wonderful, but ninety five percent of us are going through these systems, and we're developing these this, these uh, cultural habits, basically. Of someone was wrong, they're going to go on timeout. They're going on attention. They're they're going to get expelled. Uh, good kids, bad kids. I mean, where did this this stuff get learned? That's why I'm so passionate about education, because like we need to we need to move beyond this paradigm mm-hmm. and the entire K through 12 school system is based on top down ordering and punishment and obedience and all that. So <laughs> that's a big foundation. I'm, and feel free to disagree or agree, but with praxis is exciting to me because presenting new options outside of college, all of a sudden that makes K through 12 less relevant the more we mm-hmm. see that there are new options outside of college because K through 12 is all about getting into college. And so it's exciting. And that's, I wrote a blog post a few years ago called why praxis, how praxis is building world peace. And I created this whole vision. I'll link to that in the show notes, but I created this whole vision about how this K through 12 school system can dissolve over time and children can be nurtured and not taught obedience and punishment paradigms because the system dissolves because it's less relevant because college is not the only path. People have options and kids can become more autonomous and, and genuinely higher self-esteem and compassionate people. And that's going to be really helpful in solving <laughs> a lot of the big problems we have in about uh, violence in the world. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.